So we find ourselves in the second week of a series that Charles uh, introduced last week, entitled Preach What You Practice, where uh, we will spend uh, today and the next four weeks that follow looking at the core uh, commitments of storyline of our life together. Devotion, community, formation, mission, generosity, And our hope is that this time together will give us imagination, a greater sense of commitment, greater sense of what God might be calling us to as we live out uh, our shared life in this world. And today, uh, we're going to talk about devotion. And this entire series, we're allowing Ephesians to be the framework for this conversation. As Charles opened us up last week with Ephesians 3, we heard Paul write to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1. And there is both a blessing and curse in having this letter to the church in Ephesus be the frame. Now, the blessing is that it is located within a community trying to do the very same things I think we're trying to do. What does it mean to live faithfully in a world uh, that doesn't reflect God's intent for the world? A world that is fragmented and broken. What does it mean to live in community with one another? When it's just hard, we're, we're different, we're pulled in multiple directions. And so while um, we are far removed in time from the church in Ephesus, we're actually um, fairly close to them in location and where we find our life. But Ephesians is also a curse because, well, it's written by Paul. <laughs> a Paul who speaks in such uh, grandiose terms. All the time. Uh, Ways that flirts with hyperbole, in my opinion. That makes me want to say, really, Paul? Really? I mean, he opens his letter with these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Really, Paul? And just a few verses later, we get to the text that is our text for today. And I'm going to read it again and listen for this grandiose, lofty, over-the-top Paul. For this reason. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And then he talks about the church. 
And God placed all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is the fullness of him. Really, Paul, are we looking at the same church? Because I have questions for Paul. Have you seen Paul, what is happening at our borders? And heard the deafening silence from many of our churches? Or as you say, the fullness of Christ? Have you heard the deafening silence about the violence against families and children? Silence particularly from our white churches and those in power and privilege? What church are you talking about, Paul? Have you paid attention to the way many in the church look away from issues pertaining to racism and classism and homophobia? Have you not paid attention to the ways we've been silent and done nothing? Have you not paid attention, Paul? Are you not noticing the ways in which the church, the fullness of Christ, has, in large part, completely failed to care for the earth? The earth that you tell the church in Colossians was made through Christ. It doesn't take too long, it doesn't take too discerning of an eye to see that Paul's description of the church doesn't necessarily match up with the reality. The church, it seems, does not practice what Paul preaches. And this isn't a a recent observation uh, or a recent development. Uh, 57 years ago, Uh, The man whose life we'll remember and celebrate tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, wrote a letter to not just the church, but leaders in the church as he sat in a Birmingham jail. I must make two honest confessions to you, Dr. King says, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. And King says, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is far more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Forgive me, but it seems rather unlikely that when describing the characteristics of the fullness of Christ, we would want to say, well, um, let's see, we are uh, ones of shallow understanding and lukewarm acceptance. 
we are paternalistic. I wonder if Charles would be interested in going on our website and under the About Us at Storyline listing some of these things. Us, the church, the fullness of him. But even, even Paul, even Paul with his, this large and lofty and grand description of the church that we find in the beginning of his letters, that we find in much of the letters that he's written, he also sees the mess that the church is. Later on, he says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Paul tells the church in Ephesus. And you don't say these things to people that are already embodying them, right? I mean, if you overhear me say to one of my children, Hey, you need to clean your room. The assumption is that the room isn't clean. You encourage humility in people who are struggling to embody humility. You encourage being gentle to people who are not being gentle. You encourage the church to bear with one another in love. Because they're struggling to bear with one another in love. Paul sees the mess. He sees the dysfunction. He sees the ways in which the church fails to live up to the calling that he himself just talked about. So how do we make sense of this? Is, is Paul a hypocrite? Um, is he overblowing the description of the church here in Ephesians 1 in, in, in hopes that they might become what he's preaching, that they might eventually practice what he's preaching? Well, I wonder if we could return to Dr. King. And I wonder if he might be helpful here. In his uh, famous speech uh, given on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, in March of 63, he moves into this prophetic and poetic rhythm uh, that many of us are familiar, um, and we have just a short clip of it here. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. I have a dream. And one day on the red hills of sons of former slaves and the sons of former slaves will make me able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream. It's hard for me to fathom 
um, the hope and devotion by with which Dr. King lived his life. I mean, it's not just this. You go to any sermon and it is both um, incredibly uh, prophetic and critical, but also this deep hope and how things might be. It's hard for me to fathom, given the violence that he experienced, given the persecution that he and others in the black community endured and continue to endure, given that few people liked him. When Martin Luther King died, the year that he died, anyone want to take a guess at what his approval rating was in the United States? 25%. He had a lower approval rating than our president does. Even among those within his own community that shared in the same desires, did not approve of much of the way that he went about his work. And yet, amidst the unpopularity, amidst the violence and the death threats, amidst the attempts of assassination, amidst the police brutality and the imprisonment, he returns again and again to this belief that one day all things will be made right. In an article in 1958, King came back to a phrase that uh, he popularized, um, though it wasn't necessarily original to him. And he wrote this in that article, Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The imagination that King has for the world, the devotion that he has, is not predicated on how the world currently is, but for how one day he believes it will be. His devotion is not to the church. It is to the power of the kingdom of God that transforms the world. Even if we cannot see it, and even if we never see it in this lifetime, and he's not the, the first to do this. He stands in a long line of prophets, from the Hebrew prophets to the prophets of today, who claim this almost reckless commitment to how things one day will be. And this, I believe, is what we find Paul doing as he preaches to the church in Ephesus, and as he brings a word to us today. Because Paul is not blind to the dysfunction and violence and fragmentation of the world around him. And he is most certainly not blind or naive to the dysfunction and violence and fragmentation of the people to whom he writes. Rather, Paul holds on to this hope to which he has been called. This hope to which we are called. The hope that the work that was started in the life and death and resurrection of Christ is not yet done. And that the very same power that raised Christ above all rule and authority and power and dominion, both in this age and the age to come, is the very same power that gives us the imagination today to live and to be, not as we see the world, but as we trust how God wants the world to be. So our devotion... Our commitment to devotion. It is not a devotion to the church. For if history has told us anything, 
It's that the church is just as, if not more, at times, just as screwed up as any other organization around. And, let me say, our devotion is also not to the Bible. If history has taught us anything, it's that we can make the Bible say pretty much anything we want. And the church has a long history of hurting lots of people in the name of the Bible. Our devotion is to this. Our devotion is to the way of Christ and the kingdom of God that points us not to how things are, but how they should be. And in faith, believe one day all things will be made right. This is the hope of the inheritance that Paul prays the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened toward. And make no mistake, this doesn't let us off the hook. We don't have the luxury of being escapists and sitting idly by, waiting for the Lord to return and make all things right. Because this commitment of devotion, it demands engagement now, today. Right? Because we believe that families being ripped apart and children in cages at the border is not a part of God's promised and preferred future. Because we believe that, we take every opportunity today, no matter how small, to bend towards justice, to advocate, to speak up, to say, enough is enough. And because we, the church, the fullness of Him, trust in a day when fragmentation will be no more, when broken relationships will be made right, when alienation and loneliness will no longer have its grasp on creation, because we believe in that day, we embody it today, now. We practice lives that stand up to racism and sexism and classism and homophobia and xenophobia. This is the commitment of devotion. Devoted to what we believe is breaking into the world and embodying it today. So my question for us to um, spend a few minutes chatting is how might this kind of devotion to God's kingdom uh, found in the way of Christ um, that has an eye towards the day when all things will be made right, how might this change how we see or engage the world? Um, What might be the challenges or um, where do you find hope in this kind of view of devotion? I pray that God will 
the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious God, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance, and what is the measurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of the Spirit. I think um, what is amazing is that it's not a declaration of what it is. Um, that all of that is just as much uh, peril of not happening as happening. It is his prayer that yeah. those things go um, And in the face of, uh, if, you, if you know anything of, of what the church was like in the first century, uh, you know, growing up, I always idolized the first century church. And so, man, we, just, if we could just get back to the first century church. Everything would be okay. Um, but they were jacked up. Like, there was yeah. racism and um, issues of um, uh, uh, prejudice there. Uh, but Paul, in every one of his letters, uh, stands in the face of that, um, declares what should be, and prays that it happens and then advocates yeah. um, at that time for the Gentile brothers who were being prosecuted. Um, so there was an action that went along with this one. There was a there was a desire that was pointed towards God because he knew we couldn't do it on his own. I'm always amazed by that because I wildly swing between inaction yeah. and I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of last week um, in Charles' sermon talking about this is God's work. Um, right? That's really, really good news. Because we know what happens when it's left up to us. Anyone else? Yeah, John. He says in Ephesians 1 um, to pray for God to open your eyes and give wisdom mm-hmm. to, to receive the hope. Because mm-hmm. as I look around in my neighborhood with my senior citizens and their bodies and their minds are crumbling, one of the sweetest and nicest things in a few years. The last three months, she's, she's really, she's horrified. And she's starting to act in a weird way. She's the nicest lady for two years. Um, he was on the walkers or walking slower. And so, what about her? So only God can give open eyes for them, for me. So I look at the news, I try to be more careful in my intake of the news. But, but, but only God can give me hope related to the news. I can't give it. And you can't give it to me. You know, but God can open my eyes to have a for the neighbors in for the best country in the nation, and all this. So one of your, one of the quotes you just read from the I think I've heard it read before, but it's so striking and so hits home so hard. Is when we talked about the white moderates, yeah, or as much of the enemy, maybe more so than the ones who are violated, you know, yeah, close to. I just. Think that is such a struggle, uh, speaking for myself, 
as being, yeah, I agree with that position. I agree with that. But, and that's too destructive in my life to, to really seek justice in any, in any significant way. Um, I think my, my previous church role and the, the maintain, maintenance of unity far outweigh any seeking of justice. Um, yeah. So, um, it's, just a, it's a striking uh, challenge yeah. to listen to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a journey for me. I wanted to share some bear with me here. But it, it's inspired me today. I thought a lot as an adult about Martin Luther King Day, you know, that we have Monday and, and how I interact with it, how I celebrate it, remember it. Um, and that's complicated. You know, uh, a formative memory I have is as a kid, uh, my great-grandmother called me. You know, as a kid, you know, go talk to her, you know, and I got to She said, oh, you know, how's your day and everything? And she said, it's part of the 15th day, so we're home from school. And she said, well, you know, I don't know that he ever did anything for us, but at least you kids got a dance to school on And this was the major act of my family. Christian woman who taught life to school, you know, every Sunday in life. And um, in a sense, that day represents uh, where my tribe lost power, or memory about my tribe gave up power, and there's, there's this mentality behind that. Um, you know, and as a kid, I grew up with this idea that, you know, Martin Luther King lived and he had a message, and, and thank goodness we've gotten past that. Like, like racism is done, you know. Segregated, and you could say things like, I'm not a racist because, right? Which is often the very sign that you might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, would, I would hold up as evidence that if you have to make a umbrella you're not a racist, that, that probably means, you know, there's something deeper going on. And so this is the tension, right? I mean, I, I resonate with what Tommy and, and all of you shared. Of, of what does this mean, and I find myself really cut to the core by that white water um, because I think that's a lot of the message that I absorbed as a, as a child. And so, um, in my own baby steps, the, the thing that I do now is, is I, I listen to that letter from the Birmingham jail, uh, and I have an audio recording, and I try to just listen to it uh, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in hearing his message, Start by what an eloquent, powerful speaker he is. And I assume he was in jail with no resources. And so the fact that, I don't know if they brought him letters or, or other things, I don't know. But, but to rattle off that right. kind of letter from memory, holy smokes, right? Like you could give me, you know, Wikipedia and all the power of the internet, and I still couldn't pull the quotes that he pulled and, and the, the ideas that he shared, and I'm just so inspired by that. Um, and it's, it's led me to a place today where um, I think my perspective is and has to be, you know, I, there's no blanket statement like I'm not a racist. Right. Uh, I think the statement is I hold prejudices and other areas of darkness in my own self, but through the power of the gospel, I'm invited to the I share a resource. Yeah. Um, one of the there was a uh, 
a podcast that just kind of rocked my world in Boston in September, and it just kind of redefined how I dealt with prejudice in general. Um, and it's the Ezra Klein show with uh, Ibram X. Uh, Kennedy. Um, and he defines uh, racism apart from the person, right? Um, it doesn't matter what your intent was, it's the effect of that. Um, and that there are racist ideas and anti-racist ideas and there's nothing. Um, and that was, that was hard for me because that extends outside of racism. It goes to homophobia, it goes to sexism. Either this is a sexist idea or it's an anti-sexist idea. There's nothing in between. Um, and those things are hard. Those things are, are really hard to deal with in yourself. Um, I think there's a freedom to it because it allows uh, people to see the idea that they hold, the thing that they hold fidelity to as being racist, rather than accepting that to all of you, because every person is mixed, and you have good thoughts and bad thoughts, you have good intentions and bad intentions. And so to define yourself as a thing is hard. Yeah. But to see that thing reflected in you through an idea allows you the chance to kind of get at it. That, I'm still, I listen to it probably once a month just to kind of keep that idea in my head and try to tweak at it because I have I realized how much uh, prejudice that I can it's, it's I think it's good and appropriate that we uh, talk about king and racism but this uh, to your point and guessing while we're like it, it goes beyond just the issue of race in America to all the other different places of fraction and places in which we're moderates and we have the comfort to, to sort of not get our hands dirty in any of it. Uh, two things before we move to mission prayers. Uh, I'm, I'm always struck in nearly all of Paul's letters uh, as he talks with such lofty, grandiose uh, language. How, when it comes to what he wants the church to practice, uh, it's really small and ordinary. Um, be humble, be patient, be gentle, um, try not to argue, uh, love one another. Because I think the way to embody um, this devotion that we have of what we believe the world um, should be is, is through really small and ordinary um, steps. And secondly, um, you know, Charles last week opened with language of epiphany and um, revelation and he asked the question have you ever um, thought the Bible said something but then only to later to find out that um, it actually never said that well um, I wasn't here last week but I listened to the sermon and it was during the sermon that I had my own epiphany uh, it, was, it was a while ago that Charles asked me if I'd preached during this sermon and we had exchanged emails and I even clicked on a little link to listen to the sermon but it was when Charles was preaching that I first noticed the sermon series title is Preach What You Practice I just thought it was Practice What You Preach uh, and it uh, it struck me 
And it took me back to a conversation at a conference that I was in where the one who was moderating it asked us to talk at tables. And the instructions were, um, okay, take an inventory of your life, what you actually do, and what does that say about what you believe about God? And, you know, all of us good ministers and theologians are like, well, that's not how it's supposed to be done. You should say what you believe about God and then talk about practice. He said, no, no, I really don't care what you believe. I'm interested in what you actually do. And this table of ministers and theologians got really quiet. Uh, and, and it struck me as I was listening to Charles and having his own epiphany experience and thinking about how significant that turn is. Preach what you practice. And I thought, what would happen if I actually preached what I practice about that which I'm devoted to. And it got really depressing pretty quickly. Because I'd have to talk about my devotion to my own security. That's what you would see in practice. You would see a a devotion to my own safety, to my own comfort. Um... And and perhaps um, some weeks, if not most, um, you'd have a really hard time finding a practice of devotion to the kingdom of God in my life. But then I was reminded um, that each of our lives is wrapped up in the restorative, redemptive work of God. And this is good news. Even the ways in which we fail to embody what God longs for the world. God says, I'm going to make that right too. Both our lives individually and our lives as a community of faith. And this isn't an excuse. It's not something to be glib about. Like, well, God will forgive us. It's alright. It's more to say that we have the opportunity every day to wake up And say, okay, God, I know you're making all things new. And I I haven't quite put in the devotion that you've asked of me and that you've wanted of me or that you've called me to. But let's try this again, God. Open the eyes of my heart to see this hope to which you have called me and us. And so, God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, May you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. We pray, God, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance and your incomparable great power. This power, God, that is the same power that you extended in raising Christ from the dead and seating Him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And we trust, God, that every name that is invoked shall bow, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. God, you have placed all things under His feet. And you have appointed Him to be head over everything for us, your church, which is your body. May we reflect the fullness of Him.
Jesus Christ who fills everything in every way. Through Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.